ministry of Lakewood Bible Chapel, where our desire is to faithfully proclaim God's Word so that His people might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please join us now as we open up the Scriptures together. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's uh, continue our worship now as we turn to the book of Acts. And we're going to turn to the 18th chapter of this marvelous, marvelous testimony of the early church. We're in, again, chapter 18. So if you'd please turn there, stand with me for the reading of God's word. And we stand out of reverence for the word of the Lord and We'll do that now. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 23 this morning. Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 23. This is God's word. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. With him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancria, he cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, where he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be glorified in our time together. We thank you again for the tremendous privilege of coming together, hearing and applying your holy and inspired word. What a joy this is, Lord. We give you praise for this. We do so in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you can be seated. Thank you, music team, for leading us in musical worship. Speaking of which, uh, I'm sure many of you have heard the term, face the music. Well, it's time to face the music. Nobody knows where this originated. Some say it has its roots in the American theater during the 1800s, where actors used the expression as an encouragement to get over stage fright. Others say it was first used on the Civil War battlefield as men had to walk into enemy territory to the sound of both drums and rifle fire. Still others who believe that there was culture and innovation in this world before 1776 uh, say this phrase doesn't have American origins at all. In fact, uh, one theory I found fascinating is that uh, it was said to have originated in Japan. According to the story, a man in the imperial orchestra couldn't play a note. But being a person of great wealth and great influence, he demanded that he be given a place in the group because he wanted to perform before the emperor. Because the guy was so influential and so wealthy, the conductor agreed to let him sit in the second row of the orchestra, even though he couldn't even read music. He was given a flute. And when the concert began, he'd raise his instrument, he'd pucker his lips, and he'd move his finger around. He'd go through all the motions of playing, but he never made a sound. This deception continued for over two years until a new conductor took over. He told the orchestra that he wanted to 
audition each person individually. One by one, he wanted them to perform in his presence. Then came this flutist's turn. He was frantic with worry, so he pretended to be sick. However, the doctor who was ordered to examine him declared that he was perfectly well. So the conductor insisted that the man appear and demonstrate his skill. Well, shamefully, he had to admit and confess that he was a fake. He was a fraud, as it was determined he was unable to face the music. Now, again, nobody really knows the origin of this phrase, and to be honest, who cares? The meaning is clear. Uh, To face the music is most commonly used when folks are forced to accept responsibility or give an account for some course in life they've decided to take. And while it's typically used in a temporal sense and related to circumstances during this life on this earth here and now, I'd like us all to take some time to consider what it will mean for each one of us to face the music. For each man and woman to face the music, the moment they take their final breath and perish from this life on earth, I'd like us all to take some time to consider who we will prove to be when the great conductor calls us to give an account. I believe this text provides us with a perfect opportunity to do just that. So let's dive in here, starting again in verse 18. Luke writes this. After this, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. After this, Luke says. After what? Well, after what Chris took us through last week, after their time in Corinth. Now, Paul, Timothy, Silas, now Aquila, Priscilla, who we learned about last week, were all doing the work of the ministry. Paul specifically uh, was said to have been preaching the word, faithfully proclaiming the word of God in the synagogues to the point where there was this huge uproar among the Jews who became so enraged they began reviling him, even taking the matter before the Roman proconsul even beating Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, for not doing enough to silence this blasphemous Christ follower. After these things, Luke says, Paul stayed many days longer. We know he was in Corinth for at least a year and a half. That's what it says in verse 11. But then he stayed many days, even after being persecuted by his own people. He then took leave of the brothers and went to Syria and with his new missionary crew, including this a zealous and loyal husband and wife team. So he goes from Corinth, he sets sail uh, for Syria, but Luke tells us in verse 18 that he stops off at uh, Sancaria, which was about seven miles south of Corinth, actually a little bit southeast of Corinth, where he had cut his hair. <coughs> now, as you can probably tell, I like a good haircut more than anyone. But what in the world is this all about? Well, Luke says he was under a vow, likely a Nazarite vow as detailed in Numbers chapter 6. When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. All the days of his vow of consecration, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled, which he lives as a Nazarite for the Lord. He shall let the locks of, his ha- of hair on his head grow long. That sounds nice. 
And goes on to say, all the days of his life as a Nazarite for the Lord, he shall not come up to a dead person. So, don't cut your hair. Don't drink strong drink. Don't touch a dead body. Now, we know some guys who are under a permanent vow, right? We know of Samson, uh, Samuel, John the Baptist. These guys were what you call lifers. But for Paul and many others, this was a temporary vow. It was just a, a temporal vow. It may have even been a symbolic gesture of thanksgiving to the Lord for his faithfulness on the journeys thus far. It may just be symbolic. But my question is, why Paul? A vow? A a pledge? An oath according to the Mosaic law and customs? I thought we were past all this. The Jerusalem council, Cornelius, the Gentile inclusion, the law fulfilled in Christ? What is this vow talk all of a sudden? Same thing will happen in chapter 21 where Paul comes to Jerusalem. James tells him, you know, Paul, a lot of folks around here who are zealous for the law and they've been told about you that you're going around teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor walk according to their customs. They're going to know you're here, Paul, so what are you going to do? Well, James says, here's what you're going to do. There's four guys here. Take them and purify yourself together with them. Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And then everyone will know that there is nothing to what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also conform keeping the law. He says some of these fine folks in Jerusalem, they'd like to see a kind gesture or a nod to the law of Moses. And you know what Paul says? No problem. No problem. Then Paul took along the men, and the next day after purifying himself together with them, he went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. But Paul, you said we're no longer under law, but of grace. I mean, apart from Jesus, who clearly taught and demonstrated that we in no way have any ability or even desire in our natural state to keep the law of God in its entirety all the time perfectly, besides Christ himself, you are the man when it comes to salvation by grace alone apart from the law. So what in God's name are you doing taking oaths? Why are you taking a vow detailed in the law of Moses? Well, remember, Christ has set us free. Are we bound by the law in terms of altering or uh, obtaining our justification or right standing before a holy God? Of course not. Our thought lives alone would be enough to keep us under the condemnation and wrath of a holy God for all of eternity, let alone our inability to keep his entire law perfectly all day, every day. We just can't do it. We can't earn our favor through adherence to the law. We can't earn our favor with God through adherence to the law. But everything changes in Christ. Okay? Everything changes in Christ. In Christ, we have been set free from justification through adherence to the letter of the law by placing our faith in the one who fulfilled the law. While simultaneously being given the ability to walk according to the spirit of the law. Uh, Even ceremonies and customs with, with a completely different mindset, not to earn or improve on our standing before a holy Lord in a salvific manner, but in full dependence on him to then 
work and live for his glory through what our conscience deems to be appropriate in full accordance with the commands outlined in his holy and inspired word. J. Vernon McGee, I, I think he said it, he put it best here. He said this, he said, there are a great many folk who find, uh, I love when he says folk, by the way. <laughs> there are a great many folk who find fault with Paul because he made a vow. They say that this is the man who preached that we are not under law, but under grace. So he should not have made a vow. But anyone who says this about Paul is actually making a little law for Paul. Such folk are saying that Paul is doing, to do things their way. Under grace, friend, if you want to make a vow, you can make it. If you do not want to make a vow, you don't have to. Now, Paul didn't force anyone else to make a vow. In fact, he said emphatically that no one has to do that. But if Paul wants to make a vow, that's his business. That's the marvelous freedom. That's the marvelous freedom in Christ. We can. John Stott said the same thing. He said, once Paul had been liberated from the attempt to be justified by the law, his conscience was free to take part in practices which, being ceremonial or cultural, belonged to the matters indifferent. In other words, you want to eat that certain type of food? Go for it. You don't want to eat it? Don't eat it. You want to celebrate this and this such and such a day? Knock your socks off. You don't want to celebrate such and such a day? Don't do it. You have that freedom. He says the same thing in Romans chapter 14. Now, does that mean that we can do anything we want at all times? No questions asked? Like in matters of blatant violations to God's law and specifically his uh, moral law and commandments? Let, let sin abound so that grace may abound? Of course not. By no means, Paul says. To do so would be uh, presuming upon God's grace, which is evidence of a man or woman who still remains in their natural state through their habitual participation in the very things that required their Lord to be crucified, which is nonsense. You can't do it. More on that in a minute. Paul takes this vow. He cuts his hair in Sancria, then... Luke says in verse 19, they arrive in Ephesus. Finally, they come to Asia. Remember back in chapter 16, Luke said, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Why? Why were they forbidden to go to Asia? Well, there was this gal named Lydia, this Philippian jailer that needed to be converted, among other people. A church needed to start up there first, Thessalonica. So Paul says, okay, I'll go wherever you want me to go. That's what they do. They go to Philippi, they go to Thessalonica, they go to Berea, they go to Athens, Corinth, and Crea. Now here they are in Asia, in Ephesus. And what's the first thing that Paul does when he gets there? What he always did. Verse 19, he went to the synagogue. He went right into the synagogue to reason with the Jews, his kinsmen according to the flesh. And apparently, this was a, a warm reception. This was a warm welcome at first, much like his time in Berea. As Luke says, they asked him to stay longer. Stay with us. We want to hear more from you, Paul. We want to hear more about this teaching. But notice in verse 20, Paul did not consent. He declined. He said, I'm sorry, I just can't do it right now. I just, I just can't. And then something incredible happens in verse 21, and it's what I want to spend the bulk of our time looking at together this morning. Look at your Bibles in verse 21. 
But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. I will do this. I will come back. I will return to you. I will see you again. I will make my way back no matter the cost or threat to my life. I will come back if God wills. Oh, what a beautiful three words those are. If God wills. You've heard it said, God willing. Lord willing. If the Lord wills. We should never get tired of hearing this phrase, if the Lord wills, or, or God willing, because honestly, it saves people like me, for instance, from looking so arrogant and foolish, from presuming that things will go along according to my will, which is a, a, just a ridiculous notion for anyone who understands that we serve a totally and completely sovereign Lord. Amen. This term, will, here, it refers to what one wishes or has determined shall be done or that which is desired for or wished for. It refers to a desire which proceeds from one heart, one's heart or one's emotions. And in this case, Paul is saying, look, if it was up to me, I'd return to you. But ultimately, I'm only coming back if it happens to align with the desire of another. It's a complete submission to... Or, or surrender to the desire or will of another. It's, it's a submission in real time by Paul to these Jews in Ephesus, which says, I'm not actually the one who makes the decisions here, okay? <laughs> Let's see where the Lord leads. He's in charge. It's a submission. And oh, how people hate that word, submission. <laughs> It's like a curse word in modern-day evangelicalism, especially in the more liberal churches. And that makes sense. I can see how people would be gun-shy here. Uh, Many men in many churches have used the term submit to control, dominate, enslave their wives and children and to obeying their every nefarious command, proving what Paul Washer said to be true. There's nothing more dangerous than an unconverted man with a Bible. (laughs) And that's true. But that type of submission is not what the Bible teaches, does it? True biblical submission is a glorious thing because it benefits all parties in a complementary manner when ultimately everyone involved is under submission to or surrenders their will to the only one worthy of being submitted to. And let me tell you right from the get-go, there is no man or woman who fits that description. No man or woman is worthy of our complete submission. There's only one who is worthy. Who is that? Yeah, well, Paul just said it, right? God. God willing. Why God? Well, because he's perfect. And his will is perfect. He's perfectly good. He's perfectly holy. He's perfectly just, perfectly righteous and true. Notice, Paul didn't say here, I will return to you Silas and Timothy willing. Not missionary agency willing. Not elders of the local church willing. Not pastor willing. Not pope willing. Not priest willing. Not denomination willing. Certainly not Caesar willing. Not Sanhedrin willing. Not governor willing. Not president or supreme court willing. Not CDC director willing. Not social media influencer willing. 
thank God. But not even the church in Jerusalem willing. Not other apostles willing. Not even Paul willing. But who? God willing. I will return if God wills. There is only one who is worthy of our total and complete surrender, and that is the living God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, Theos, the supreme authority, the supreme sovereign, the all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-infinite, all-independent creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. Yahweh himself, whom the psalmist said, established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nation, the Lord reigns. And he reigns supreme. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and all in between. For he is the one whom Isaiah 46 has declared the end from the beginning, which means that he's already fully aware of and in absolute control of everything that's going to happen right up to the very end of the earth itself and for all of eternity thereafter. Why? Because he's God. He's sovereign over all. That's what makes him God. And what are we? What is man? Yeah, we are not God. We are not sovereign. We are not omnipotent and omniscient and infinite and independent. So how crazy would it be then? How foolish would it be then to say, not thy will, but my will be done? Or or this guy's will be done? It would be madness to think that we have the ability to alter the circumstances in our lives to accomplish certain things and carry out our plans. This is why James says, come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. He says, come on now. Come on, man. Uh, Too many variables in life for you to have the audacity to claim that you have the ability to control them. You're giving yourself way too much credit here. In fact, what is your life, he says? For you are a mist that appears for a little time then vanishes. Instead, you have to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this. We will live and do this or that. Reminds me of the parable of the rich man whose land produced plentifully. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I'm going to tear down the barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. Then I'm just going to kick back, enjoy my life, eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, fool. You fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? You fool. James says the same thing when you neglect to surrender everything to the will of the sovereign Lord. All you're really doing is boasting in your arrogance. And he says, all such boasting is evil. There's only one who is worthy of our complete submission, and that is God himself, who commands us 
to submit, by the way. He demands that we submit to his authority and to his will. So here's a $64,000 question. What is the will of God? What does that mean, if God will? Well, Paul told the Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, but what is it then? Specifically, what is the will of God for my life? How do I get to this place, Paul? Well, God came down from heaven and he walked the very earth that he spoke into existence with the word of his power. So it only makes sense for us to go right to the source and see how he says we should get there. He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's the Father's will for the Son. Then he says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And there you go. There's his will. That's his desire. In this case, his decree, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Then it goes back to our sanctification when we are conformed into the image of his son. In fact, Paul himself uh, said to believers, those who have looked upon the son, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Then he gives a, a whole list of practical examples and commands, uh, avoid sexual immorality and others, for God has not called us to impurity or for impurity, but in holiness, he says. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He gives it to you. That's the will of God for your life. Be born. Be humbled. Be born again. Believe. Be saved. Be justified. Then be conformed. Be progressively sanctified, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ until the day you die, and then be glorified when you are raised to everlasting life with him. Is that true of you? You say, well, how do I know? Well, I guess the first thing I'd ask is whether or not you're concerned with the will of the Lord, or if you're only concerned with your will and your plans. How can we know this? Well, let me give you some examples of what Christian submission looks like. We've seen it already in Acts, right? In chapter 4, the apostles preaching in the temple, they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, but the elders, the chief priests and scribes, called them in and charged them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to listen to God, you must judge. For we cannot help but speak of what we have seen or heard. We cannot help this, even if we wanted to. Why? Because they were under the control of his Holy Spirit and walking in accordance with his will. Same thing in chapter 5. 
They say, don't do this again or we'll kill you. Peter says, well, we must obey God rather than man. How about you? Saul of Tarsus, now Paul, hates the true and living God and the people of God. He's hell-bent on destroying the name of Christ and all who bear witness to it until Christ saves him and says, go to such and such a place, I'll tell you what to do. Then Paul goes, he tells him what to do, and he does it. We're seeing this even in our text today. Don't go to Asia, go to Macedonia. Now go to Asia. And Paul says, okay, wherever you want me to go. Was that true of you? Uh, are you open to and in complete subjection to where the Lord might have you and what he might want to do with you? It was the same with Peter, right? He says, oh, I'm a good Jew. Oh, I'm a good Jew. I would never mingle with Gentiles. But God says, nah, I'll pour out my spirit even on what you consider unclean and I'll do it by grace alone. They don't even have to become a Jew first. What did Peter say? He said, who am I to argue with God? In other words, his will be done. Which is exactly what Christ taught him to pray in Matthew chapter 6. He said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And maybe the greatest model and example of uh, Christian submission to the will of God was that of God in human flesh himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus went with them to this place called Gethsemane where he began to be sorrowful and troubled, saying, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here, he told the disciples, and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Luke says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Why such agony? Well, because he always obeyed his father's will. And he knew what his father's will was. He would be crushed by his father. He would be offered up as a living sacrifice, betrayed, arrested, beaten, spit on. Literally, they spit on him while they were beating him. Have you ever been spit on? He knew it was coming, too. He told them, they'll mock me, they'll spit on me, they will kill me. They will crucify me. But I will raise three days later. I will rise. He knew all this was coming. Yet, he was in full submission to the Father's will. So he told the disciples, see, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He didn't say that so that they could then scurry off into the night, finding a hiding place from Judas and his mob. This was him saying, my betrayer is at hand. I know the Father's will. Let's do this. Let's go meet him. Now, the agony in the garden wasn't over the spit, it wasn't over the flogging, it wasn't over the mockery or even being killed. Even the crucifixion itself wasn't the cup of God's wrath that caused his soul to be in troubled anguish. What he submitted to 
and was frankly terrified of submitting to was the will of the Father which said that he would take the place of sinners on the cross. That he who knew no sin would be made to be sin, would become sin. Meaning, as he took his final breath and said, it is finished, as he bowed his head, as he gave up his spirit, he would, for the first time in all of eternity, be separated from the love of his Father in heaven. This, this holy and righteous judge who couldn't stand the sight of him on that cross. As, as he bore the sin of and took the penalty for sin for all who would believe in him and call upon his name. That was the will of his father. and That's why he said, if there's any other way Anything else, please let this cup pass. But there was no other way to reconcile desperately sinful man to an infinitely holy God. A perfect sacrifice had to be made. A perfect substitutionary atonement, a penal substitutionary atonement had to be given. So he said, nevertheless, not my will. Your will be done, for this is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Is that true of you this morning? Can you with all sincerity say in your heart of hearts, not my will, but your will be done? And take comfort this morning in the reality that you can't do that in your own strength. Remember, Jesus in the garden was under the control of the Holy Spirit. Okay, The only way to do this, again, the only way, is to depend upon him fully uh, to cause this to happen in your life. And he does so by the strength of his Spirit. Only believers... Only true, born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have the ability to do his will. Okay, This is an exclusive group. Christianity is an exclusive religion. Unbelievers cannot consciously or intentionally do the will of God ever. The, the, the source of our submission is God himself. And Paul tells the Colossians, And so, from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The ability to know and then walk according to God's will comes through the power of God's Spirit who dwells within God's people. Does that make sense? Which is exactly what he said he was going to do. He said, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you to the Israelites. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He's the source, He's the cause. He's the source of our submission. In other words, we depend on him fully to even think about living in submission to his will. 
I'll just tell you personally, every morning I plead with the Lord. I, I say, uh, please allow me to live according to your will this day. I'm dependent on him. Why? Because I'm weak. I'm pathetic. I'm totally dependent on him. Please let me be the husband that you want me to be. Let me be the, the father who you want me to be. Let me be the preacher who lives in accordance with your, to your will. And if I'm resistant to that in any way, shape, or form, please remove whatever's causing that resistance from me. Control me. A lot of people hate this idea of submitting to God's will. They talk about their free will being violated and use it as an, as an excuse to live their life any way they want. Most folks will walk around saying, well, we're not robots. For me, I say, oh, I long to be a robot. If he's the designer and the programmer, I want to be controlled by the one who knows best. Praise the Lord. Wind me up. Download your software into me and control my every thought, word, and deed. Control me. Please. Please control me through the strength of your spirit. I want to be a slave if he's my master. I want to be purchased with a price. If he's the buyer, I want to be the temple of the living God. If he's the architect, so, so lean on him and, and ask him with all sincerity of heart, please carry out your will for my life by your grace and for your glory. And in turn, uh, it's demonstrated in how we live, right? If we're in submission to his will, it's going to show evidence. Because Paul says we are slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. We are his slaves. We obey our master like the angels in heaven. Okay, This is what Jesus meant when he said, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He means like the angels, uh, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. One preacher said, prayer is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done on earth. And that's exactly right. True believers hate the thought of carrying out their own will. And that precious will of ours is what got us into trouble in the first place. I hate the inclinations of my own heart when they're in opposition to the will of the perfect sovereign Lord. I hate it. This is why the man-centered idea of a person coming to faith in Christ and yet not submitting to him as Lord or being allowed to remain in their sin using their confession of Jesus as Savior as a cover is so repugnant. It's a false teaching is what it is. And those who propagate such nonsense are false teachers themselves. You know, I was at a church um, whose elders wanted me to reconsider my position on the sovereignty of God and salvation as well as the necessity for a believer to submit to Jesus as Lord as evidence of genuine conversion. And I said, now wait a second. What if a woman in this church comes to me and asks me to do a funeral for her adult son? And she says, Matt, can you tell all these folks that little Timmy was a good Christian man and that he's in a better place now? He's up in heaven. 
I mean, he memorized verses in Awana. He prayed the prayer of salvation, the sinner's prayer at Bible camp. And I said, and I say, I happen to know this family. And I say, well, gee, Miss Smith, I happen to know Tim. And while it's true he grew up in this environment, he lived out his adult life as a gay Buddhist. He said he hated Christ. He hated the church. He hated the Bible and completely and totally renounced everything to do with it. And I said to these elders, I said, you mean to tell me that you want me to say to this woman that her son was saved because he prayed some prayer, had some intellectual assent to Jesus as the Messiah, that you would be okay with my willingness to lie in his funeral, saying that he was a Christian just to make his mom and other family members feel better about the day? Knowing that in my heart of hearts I would be deceiving and bearing false testimony who, to those who may be there in the same condition, you want me to do this? And they said, yes. He said he believed and prayed the prayer at camp. Once saved, always saved. Well, I said, well, I will never, never teach that because it gives people a false assurance of salvation. It's clear that while he went out for, from us, little Timmy was never actually of us. And they said, well, then you're fired. In so many words. <laughs> See, I'm not in Tennessee anymore. <laughs> this uh, easy believism or cheap grace heresy has plagued the American church like a cancer for decades. And the, the church as a whole for centuries. And it's antithetical to what the Bible teaches about the character of true and saving faith. We surrender. We submit. We yield. We obey our Lord. Do you know what that word Lord means, by the way? Kurios? We've said it before. And describes one having absolute legal power and thus the one who is master or possessor. It is the one who has absolute ownership. The kurios has control over his possessions and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. We're his. We're his possession. He has control over those who are his. Now did you know in the New Testament Jesus is referred to Ten times as Savior, and some 700 times as Lord. Supreme in authority is what he is. Kurios translates Jehovah or Yahweh in the uh, Old Testament in some places. Uh, this, this is 7,000 times he's referred to as Lord. He is Lord. This is the fallacy of nominal Christianity. Christianity in name only with no actual heart change, no submission, no obedience. And yet, Jesus says those who merely say his name while pretending to be of him will be exposed for what they truly are. They're, they're mere professors. They're not possessors, right? Don't take my word for it here. He said it himself. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will, uh, will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's how serious this is. And I'm not trying to harp just for the sake of harping here on folks. I'm, I'm not. I don't want any of you to be deceived. Because notice what he says in, in that section. Can you put that back up, Jake? That last Matthew 7? All right. Look what he says here. Not everyone who says to me. Not everyone who says to me. On that day, many will say to me. In other words, the Lord Jesus himself will be the judge of the sincerity of our faith. The Lord Jesus himself will be the one who sees whether or not we possess that which is required for entrance into the kingdom. And while we may be able to fool folks down here into thinking we can play the flute, or act like Christians by simply going through the motions of American Christianity, we will not be able to fool the great conductor on the day when he judges both the living and the dead. Think about that moment. Think about the second you die. The second you die, when you will have to face the music for all of eternity. Are you, are you living your life in accordance with the will of God or are you just faking it until you make it? We can fool each other all day long. <laughs> we cannot fool the sovereign Lord of all creation. Have you surrendered your life to his perfect will? Totally. And notice I didn't say have you surrendered to his will perfectly during your Christian life. Of course we can't do that. We're not yet glorified. We still sin. There's still this war being waged between our flesh and our spirit. But the desire is there. Is is there a, a yearning to be obedient to your master in your life? Do you love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates? Have you been transformed? Are you a new creation? Are you new The creature, does your sin grieve you? Do you mourn over your sin while simultaneously rejoicing that it's been paid for at the cross? It's all done. Or are you leaning wholly on that prayer you prayed back in 1976? Your get-out-of-hell-free card that you got at some crusade. May it not be so for us. I don't want you to leave this place deceived. There... There is joy in submitting to the sovereign king of all. It's, it's not a burden to submit to God. It's not so, somehow encroaching on our freedoms. And in fact, true submission is evidence of true faith, with, which actually sets us free in Christ. When we don't submit to the Lord, we're in bondage. But when we do submit, we're free. And he's done that through the gospel of Christ. John says the same thing, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. It's not burdensome to follow Christ. It's a joy. It's, it's incomparable to anything that this world can offer because what comes with it is a peace that surpasses all understanding. 
So if you've, if you've never done so, I would, I would implore you to cry out to him and ask him to give you the, the ability to live according to his will for your life. Ask him to make this a reality in your life. And maybe even if he has never done so, to give you the ability to do so through the regenerating work of his Holy Spirit. Because if you came into this place this morning thinking you can receive Jesus as Savior but not submit to him as Lord, that's a pretty good indication that you need to hear the gospel and be saved. And be regenerated, born again. So I'd implore you to do so today, to believe in Christ, believe on Christ. The whole person of Christ, not just a portion of him. Be saved. It's a joy to submit to the living God, right? It's a joy to, with Paul, say, I will if God wills. With the psalmist, say, to with the psalmist, say, I delight to do your will. Oh, my God. Your law is written on my heart. Delight in carrying out God's will for your life and rejoice in your ability to do so by his grace alone. Amen? Amen. Well, we don't have a lot of time for verses 22 and 23 here, but Lord willing, we'll touch on them again next week. Quick summary, though, real quick, because I did the outline. We got the outline all written up. No. <clears throat> Luke says in verse 21 that he sets sail from Ephesus, Paul, and then he lands at Caesarea. Then the text says he goes up to greet the church, then he goes back down to Antioch. Now, where's the location that they were always going uh, when they come into town, they're going up, but when they leave town, they go down. What is that location? Jerusalem, that's right. And this makes sense. This is where Paul would finish off his vow, offering a sacrifice in accordance with the ceremonial customs we referenced earlier. He greets the church, then he heads to Antioch, to his sending church, the home base for his first and second missionary journeys, and he spends some time there. Then Luke says in verse 23, he departed and went from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. And in those verses 22 and 23, we see the ending of the second and beginning of the third missionary journeys of Paul, including a return to Ephesus in the will of the sovereign Lord. But more on that next week. In the meantime, we praise the Lord for his amazing grace and the privilege of submitting to him as master of our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together and we'll have Noel and the team come up and close us in musical.